Hello, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne. That is Chris Sacktism. Chris, how are you hanging in there? You doing all right? Uh, hanging in, I think, is the the operative uh, framework, David. I, I'm I'm challenged. I, I am looking forward to the art walk in downtown Seattle Pioneer Square today. I will be there at the gallery at 114 3rd Avenue, 6 to 8 p.m., kind of repping my uh, solo exhibition. I'm still very excited about that, but I I find that I am... Uh, I feel embattled, you know, in 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 Seattle. I think the Pacific Northwest is is beautiful, but I have had a lot of thoughts, and I have to say, a lot of art good. You know, I think there is some real social dysfunction here, which we won't dwell on further because we kind of gave that a good serve last time. Um, but I I will say some things that did surprise me a little bit, just minor thing. But there, COVID is very much alive here. I see many, many more masks. Uh, things are not open. A lot of restaurants are closed at eight or nine. Uh, I came home from uh, Chris Schlipp and his wife's house. Great dinner the other night. It wasn't that late. And this is not Boulder City. This is, you know, a major metro area. Mm -hmm. And man, it was a ghost town. I mean, and and I did, I had to stop off at a, a 7-Eleven and the people who were hanging out there, I really did flash back to like, well, not quite Harlem 1979, but something, something that did not fit in with uh, the Seattle projected image. So I'm a little bit challenged, but I'm, I've had a good time. I had a good time with my family so far. And I, but I'm looking forward to uh, getting home. Um, that's yeah, that's kind of the, the the report. How are you doing? Great, excellent. Good. I've been uh, taking a, a tonic. It's called Eternal Gin. <clears throat> it's uh, put together by a guy named Romania Dean Thomas. The mixture has Romania in it. Romania, Schizandra, Rishi, Hosho Wu. Um, and it's fun to say <laughs> it's really fun to say yeah and not not a whole lot of fun to drink although i do enjoy the earthy dirt taste of mushrooms i've always liked them magic mushrooms or otherwise i i kind of dig that um the earthy dirt taste of mushrooms that's beautiful man I, that makes me feel good just hearing it yeah it's so i've been feeling pretty great uh haven't been sleeping as much as I would like to, but there are things to be done. And I've been having a really good time staying up late. I've been just absolutely hooked on Richard Morgan's novel, Altered Carbon. It's, uh, oh. it's so good. It's so I'm good. I'm very, uh, well, the, of course, there's a TV series out of that. But, you know, back, the backstory on that is that um, when Chris Schloop at Random House bought Zanesville, his rise to editorial kind of influence there was because he brought that over from uh, from England. Oh, is that right? Or, or, cool. No, no, maybe that might have been his first. I don't know. He he certainly brought China Mieville over from England, but he bought Altered Carbon, and that was the that was the hot book when the contract for Zanesville was written. Um, so I'm I'm that's cool, and I'm glad you you dig it. And it's um, 
it did get made into a TV show. So there's hope for, you know, it, it took 15 years or 18 years, whatever, 15 years. Yeah. Uh, but that's cool. Yeah, I think that they're, I'm glad you brought that up because China Mieville, I really enjoyed Perdido Street Station and a few other of his books. I haven't read any of the more recent ones. I'm really loving Altered Carbon. Uh, of course, I love your books, but it makes sense that Zanesville is right there with Altered Carbon because there's a specific flavor of late 90s, early 2000s writing. And they're they're similar in no way at all in terms of plot, but the the vibe is similar. Yeah, no, I think that's well said. And I, I, I can't imagine a more articulate or precise word that would really suit because there, there aren't obvious connections, but yeah, I've, I've felt that very much at the time. And so I think like a few of us felt like, Hey, this is kind of a, you know, it's not such a big wave that we're self-conscious about it, or it's going to explode. It was a quiet vibe that was forming and just some resonances and connections. And it seemed like the horizon was was exciting and open and big. Little did we know. <laughs> yeah, I made the mistake of looking up Altered Carbon on Goodreads, and it's got an average three-star review out of 11,000 reviews. And the first review is from a woman who put it down after 20 pages because the author, uh, speaking through the avatar of Takeshi Kovach, the protagonist, notices women's breasts and gets erections, which is just, can't do it. I think that for all of the sort of the squealing, squeaky disturbances that started in the 70s about the relationships between men and women, it really did start to, to dig in then because I did notice that too. And you think, wait a minute. And it's just gotten worse and worse and worse to the point of where can it go? Mm -hmm. You know, where can it go and people still relate to each other? And why are all, you know, I, I don't understand certain um, well-fashioned decisions that women are making if they have that idea, because, hey, I'm looking, I, I don't, I don't care. <laughs> Well, that's the thing. It's it's a very strange balance. And I believe it's been it's been pointed out that we live in the age of OnlyFans, but also it's gross and weird if men comment on liking what they're looking at. That's mm -hmm. not okay. You're basically essentially, if you want to boil it down, what these people want is for men to shut up just never talk ever again and you know everything that we say is just though. bad yeah get the credit card out yeah but, yeah but oh, mouth yeah. shut wallet open we're good oh, look it it i think that cannot be overstated and i think that if women push back on that uh i understand i understand that that it's hard to accept and it just sounds so trivial and pathetic and mentally ill uh, but nonetheless, it, it is closer and closer to the reality. And it made one of the underlying themes of this visit, uh, which fits directly into what you said, which I think you've, you 
phrased it very, very pointedly, uh, is one of our heroes, Gregory Bateson. Out of his amazing career, you know, he had so many diverse chances to look at, you know, anthropology, New Guinea, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I think one of his most important contributions was the idea of the double bind, mm-hmm. family dynamics. He focused on, on the family because that's what he was serving as a counselor psychologist. But how family dynamics create situations where mental health problems are the inevitable result. There's no way to manage the cognitive dissonance. There's no way to manage the onslaught of the only fans constant tits and but constant and then don't say anything don't react don't don't even have any kind of sensuality as a male mm-hmm. i don't think it's anything to do in part with 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 sexuality or sexual expression i think it's about just shut up it's you power yeah, yeah it's a power it's a power thing like you will it takes look but don't touch to look but don't mention don't recognize it's funny you mentioned Bateson I've this is you know ignore all my crazy notes but I was doing Bateson's pyramid here oh okay and, and environment behaviors skills beliefs and identity I'm just taking this is for listeners I'm showing him a page of my notes because I'm scribbling all day like a madman with uh, marketing plans and lots of exciting stuff on the on the horizon but um well to get things kicked off today, do you have a band for us? I do. I do. They, uh, they're uh, all my bands are sort of dysfunctional, as people might gather. But I think that's the nature of the times. This is a band called Angry Together, which I think really captures a lot of the mood. And they are their their music is a mix of elevator music, obscenely AI synthesized sweet, you know, complete uh, melody smother is is a term that is uh, used. Um, it's actually used by the CIA that you can drive people nuts by incredibly distorted jackhammer, weird rap, all sorts of things. But yep. they also believe that you can drive people insane with completely canned music. Um, so that's one of the elements. Um, but the, then the overlay is some really deep, classic American roots genre of, of country blues so stuff with real substance and heart and depth but over this absolute layer of translucent slime of non-existent psychoactive music that destabilizes the whole cognitive system so you're getting a cognitive freak out while you're getting a gut and heart pump up and some their their uh lead single is death is a business mm, that's cool and it's about an undertaker's convention death and they have another business. one called ribeye fat makes good beans baby <laughs> that's good makes good beans Awesome. What is your aphorism for today? Okay. 
a great deal of what happens in life is because people lack goodbye courage. And some of, well, one pedestrian person in question said, why don't you just say the courage to say goodbye? And I said, well, I don't really, I'd rather, I like, I like goodbye courage more. I think this keeping your options open thing uh, has gotten to a ludicrous point on, on every level. We see it in the job market. We see it in the romance, dating market, relationships. It, we see it in, in uh, where people live. There's a quasi sense of we've got options. Well, no, you don't if you're trapped by your options. And this is different. We, we've, we've devoted some time to in past episodes to uh, the, the falsity of abundance, the mm. illusion of variety, the confusion of variety. And that's in the marketplace, that's in supermarkets, that's online, sure, all the time. And I think we gave that good treatment, but that's fairly, I think, obvious and concrete. What I'm talking about is the psychological need to hoard options, possibilities that aren't real and that completely paralyze <clears throat> real growth and development. And I have seen some, one of the, uh, I've made an amendment to the working title of my memory and alertness book of, I was thinking about words like how, you know, contentment, mental contentment, and, you know, all that well-being and all that. And I thought, no, how to live a more decisive life, how to have a more decisive mind. And in my line of thinking, that a decisive mind is also more lateral spontaneous, mm -hmm. fluid, capable of improvisation. I think the notion that decisive is somehow staccato and, and you know, more like a knife cut. Well, no, I think we've got to be much more, it's more like knife dancing, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so goodbye courage, you know, and sometimes we have to clean house, throw things out. Sometimes we've got to get rid of yeah. some friends. Yeah. The, the, I think courage is the optimal word there because what connects the goodbye, you know, the decisiveness that you're talking about with the ability to think laterally is in both cases, courage and the inverse is true as well. So the opposite of that indecisiveness and also non-lateral thinking is completely fear-based. Those are two, you know, Exact. And I, I, I did a guest lecture at Seattle University yesterday, and it was a, uh, I liked the students. Um, a one I had had come to the launch night of my art exhibition, but there were a couple of young guys. I was surprised because at UNLV, where I've been teaching, there are fewer and fewer male students all the time. But one of them commented on the fact that he picked up on the, on the, the fact that I used the words courage and joy three to four times across the whole session he said i really i really that that meant a lot to me to hear those uh possibly simple words that seem somehow out of fashion resuscitated and he said i th i thought that you brought those to life in a really cool way and also made them seem like something that you sh you know you you could just embrace pick up and use you know you don't have to apologize for it 
I like that. Yeah. 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 And there, there's the further along I get in this journey with you and in my personal life, I'm finding more and more value in words like that. Simple words. Yeah. You know, I mean, over analyzing, overthinking, uh, over intellectualizing some things. No, it's courage. It's fear. It's joy. It's growth. Those are the words that I'm using now because I think that they're very dense. They're very dense and they everybody knows what they mean. It's not and academic I, speak. Well, the academic speak, the problem with that is that it's all an outgrowth of euphemism mm-hmm. and sanitizing words. It's the fear of saying something bold, blunt, and in archetypal terms, masculine. You know, that's a lot of what these, the problem, these words is, but the apparent simplicity of them for, I think, starting maybe in the sixties, but certainly, you know, it's, it's, it has never gone out of fashion. It's picked up steam. There are the academic, the pedestrian academic mind feels the need to neutralize those words to cut the balls off, but also to embellish them and embarnacle them with all this Baroque syllabic nonsense that really just, I mean, no one really knows what they're talking about, except they know what they're not talking about. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A new and evil version of never getting to the point. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, or, and I think it, the, the, the problem is it, it's not an enjoyment of not getting to the point and going on a wonderful story adventure explore you know let's go lost exploring no no they get to the point and that's the only point they have is that we're not really talking about anything with heart it's as you i you you had the phrase last time bloodlessness Mm -hmm. last episode and i love that i have that really got into my vocabulary this week it's it's a good word I think so too. And I think it it's really helpful because it both describes a certain kind of person. We all know who we're talking about. And it describes the reason they are that way because it implies a kind of vampiric presence that has sucked that blood out of them, that's emptied them. I I think the the vampire paradigm is absolutely essential to our time you know and even maybe more important than the zombie thing i think there's a level of vampiric manipulation and insidiousness to this that that's why you can't just go well it's bloodless nonsense i'm i just will steer away from that no that there's there's something more uh perversely aggressive from these completely bloodless you know individuals you wouldn't expect that, but where, if you are bloodless, what's your option? Well, you're going to become a vampire, you know, mm-hmm. this, this, that, that's, you got to feed, you got to, yeah. you got to move on to the next one. That's what I've noticed too, uh, a kind of bloodless hunger from people. Um, zombie works too, but that's more, if you take both of those archetypes, those monsters and put them together, mush them. I think you have a pretty decent I think that, picture of society. I, right? Yeah, I, I think you need that mutation. And there's nothing that says that that you know, can't be done in, in literature or entertainment. But it certainly is, I think, a, a, the exactly the way to uh, process what's going on. 
you a know? zompire. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect, man. Uh, what is my imaginative challenge for today? And while you're telling me, I'm still listening. I'm just going to go check on Gus, make sure he's all right. Okay. Okay. Well, I do have a little bit of, of backstory on this. I, uh, I was listening to uh, a program about the current position on gender identity and the larger issue of, of these, you know, identity politics decisions that are being made. The, the basic idea that human psychology determines the nature of reality when we underwrite science. Meanwhile, a lot of people are saying that, you know, there's an anti-science thing because people don't want to take vaccines, but it's perfectly fine to say, well, you know, there are any number of genders. Well, no, I don't think, I think, I think there's uh, kind of deficient science on both sides, but it really has struck me that a lot of the, the social justice issues of today, no matter how important we see them as, have slipped entirely out of, of reasonable frame and now are assertions that this is the reality, full stop. And I think that is the absolute end of science. I think it's the end of any possibility of integrating humanity with the continuum of life. And that's become my number one priority. I Everything I'm looking at and thinking about is are there analogs in other living forms or are we talking about humans only? And if so, can we really, really prosecute that? Can we really look deeply at that? Is that, is that in fact right? So out of all of that mess, I just had a, a little uh, story idea of a boy, kind of like a boy, you know, mm-hmm. who manifests a condition and parents at your stage and older but certainly i think in the first three four years are i don't know a little bit anxious you know a lot of uh spectrums to to land on a lot of strange behaviors to that might appear a lot of interesting capabilities and perhaps supernatural powers So the boy in question, whatever your relationship to him is, you're writing a story about him, is that he has a telepathic connection with animals. And the pattern of that is not clear to him. This is emerging and evolving. It can be perhaps quite terrifying, and it can manifest in in many ways that look very much like schizophrenia. Uh, night terrors, all sorts of things. But it is not a Dr. Doolittle story exactly at all. It's not he can understand the animals talking because they're not talking. Humans talk. Uh, But there is a profound psychic connection that is possible. It could be intermittent and not consistent. It could reframe the taxonomy of animals, you know, so that maybe there's a deep connection with dogs. We might expect that, uh, and not so much with uh, a blue jay. But maybe not. Maybe it doesn't work that way. You you decide how it works. So we want to get a feel 
for how this capability, this expanded consciousness reality for this little boy, who's still kind of pre-linguistic, on the, you know, coming up, mm -hmm. how does this manifest? And, well, if, if there are parents involved, or if you're writing from the perspective of a parent, what do you do? How do you, how do you start deducing what's happening? And what is any possible response to it? Mm, okay. But I, I really, I feel this incredible importance in, in getting our mindset possibly horizoning back to the continuum of life, other animals. You know, we started off talking about the indigenous mindset. Well, this, that's where it starts. I mean, they're not joking around when all of their gods are animals, animal mm -hmm. figures. The whole totemic dream idea, dream clan, all of that is has a concrete textuality to it that we need to get we need to return to that, not metaphorically, but some real sense that uh, it's not just us looking through the microscope, you know. Cool. That's awesome. I like this one a lot. Um, lots of different directions I could possibly take this one. What would you like to talk about today? Okay. Well, I wanted, um, I didn't want to have a, a kind of social uh, attack on Seattle. Uh, I really, I, I wanted to move beyond that and to start processing some of the the issues into larger notions and and ones that fit into some of the bigger themes that we've been picking up on and photography has been on uh, our minds uh the power of photography how the invention of photography really created the modern era we've we've made that case and I, i'm sort of thinking of a return to that because it also ties in with our concerns about time. I think we've really jumped on that, that, that some new approach to how humans individually, socially, and culturally uh, construct, process, relate to, navigate, and inhabit time is, is got to be part of our survival paradigm toolkit. And I've been thinking about the strangely predictive quality of photos. We've talked about, and you've had a couple of good examples where the logic of cause and effect, A and B sequencing, gets flipped around. And mm -hmm. we talked about how, you know, like the reboot of Hawaii Five-O creates the original. You know, mm -hmm. there are these little, you know, paradoxes that I think a lot of people can can get with. And Philip K. Dick was kind of and he's the writer that I yeah. think. Um, but if we look at this in fairly literal concrete terms, there are there are a lot of photographs, particularly family photographs, that get taken that really seem to be not records of the event, but the event itself, and to have a weird predictive as in deterministic framing of the memory takeout that will coincide and travel with that photograph in time mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And I think that's a very peculiar thing. So at the same time, I was mulling this over at a kind of family uh, barbecue down to the south. And my niece's uh, boyfriend at the moment is an aerospace engineer. And he's working on uh, a project for Origin, the, uh, the first going back to the moon, you know. Mm -hmm. And he was describing the engineering sort of, I, I asked him for kind of a, a forensic breakdown of what he's really doing. Strip aside the math of, of how he's doing it or the computer programs. And it seems to me, and he kind of agreed with my uh, gloss assessment, that what's involved is predicting, simulating the, stre the physical stresses and pressures on every single component of the rocket unit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, So we've already got a weird thing. We're not talking about the human element of that. Right. It's already gotten very reductive and weird. But I said, in a way, what you're trying to do is take the entire voyage in advance. And he said, well, yeah. And I said that, that therefore, any surprise along the actual journey path is not really what you're hoping for. And he said, well, that's absolutely right. And I thought that is an amazing sort of notion of engineering as simulating the future. I have never yeah. thought of it that clearly. Yeah. And I certainly not had agreement uh, by a, a trained professional. So I thought I would throw that to you. And I think you can see how those sort of relate. But I think there's something um, very concerning <laughs> about that direction of both those issues the strangely predictive quality of photography and this notion of highly technical engineering such as aerospace or aeronautical engineering simulating the future and really creating a powerful distortion of time which has commercial value of immense significance the when did simulation begin was that cybernetics where that really started back in the 40s or 50s when they started trying to account for rockets right yeah kind of norbert wiener um you know rocket trajectories and things like that because before cybernetics i don't think we had predictive other predictive capabilities but not necessarily the kind of simulations that we've had today the idea of photography's predictive uh, capabilities is interesting because it's providing a kind of frame. It's putting a moment into a certain spot with a certain lighting. It makes me think of this video I saw that was really fascinating. And it was of a woman's face, good looking woman, and a light is going around her face. And you're seeing the way that her face itself begins to change as the light goes around it she looks like a hundred different people all at once depending on where that light is right and so what you choose to take a picture of can begin to become these sort of building blocks or perhaps messages from the future where the simulation gets to me is i think it ties in directly with what you had mentioned earlier about science no longer becoming a process uh, but becoming more of a belief system. And I, mm -hmm. I can't help but think 
with all due respect to this this guy I'm, i you know do your work man send send the rockets to the moon but that kind of science outside of aeronautical engineering has really gotten us into the place that we are today we're, we're living in a sort of minority report situation where every factor is trying to be accounted for and when you said so a surprise would be bad that's the that's the key right there because science is supposed to be a, the, the surprises that you find along the, you know you discover penicillin by accident you think oh well, I think it's a good way in, in, in fairly crude but effective terms of seeing a, a fundamental difference between science and engineering. Mm -hmm. I think that where what we've lost here is, is the science. The science isn't growing. The engineering capabilities as in precision, as in fewer mistakes. You know, think about that, David. Your life will be based on how few mistakes you made. You know, it doesn't matter if you have 36 more summers or 106. The question is, how many mistakes have do you have at the end to total up? And it, the moment you can free anyone, but most importantly, oneself from that model. But I think that's my number. That's my mission as a teacher, just to smash the hell out of that notion. You know, it's it's. It's so completely defeatist and dis, I mean, disheartening. No, there's just no, it's soul devouring. Absolutely. Know? Absolutely. And if that think, I mean, I, and I think it's, it's an exaggeration and I am being melodramatic to say that's the basis of the engineering mindset today. I have far too much respect for engineers and I don't think that's the only way to present what they're doing, but just insofar as it's there at all, I think that's part of, uh, well, Lauren Isley called the whiff of death mm -hmm. of, of, you know, the 19th century with all of the wonderful things that were learned, particularly in, well, uh, all the sciences, but I was thinking of now, he was thinking of natural history. There is that uncomfortable sense that we're killing what we're studying, you know, mm -hmm. killing what we're learning to appreciate. And that's the 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 cognitive trap that we come out of the 19th century into the 20th century. I think that's a way of seeing uh, World War One, for instance, in a new light, because we think of it in terms of, you know, imperial, the, the social political aspects of the old world versus the new. Yeah, we get that. That's obvious. But I think underlying it is this much stranger sense of our knowledge, which started off as appreciation, curiosity, investigation, is starting to look more and more murderous. You think that, back to your original point, do you think that then photography is a kind of predictive simulation? That's the that's the link between the two? That's exactly the link. And I, I you said it just beautifully. That's exactly what I'm... I'm not saying every photograph, and I, I realize there's quite a bit of photography that I do that really, sometimes consciously, but certainly always subconsciously fights against this. But I do think that's exactly what's happening. And I think that for uh, an enormous number of people, however obvious or blatant this practice is, 
they're not seeing what they're doing. It's invisible. They've mm. come to accept it as a social practice. And then they don't realize the psychological implications. Well, if so-and-so isn't in the photograph, well, there's a mm. hauntedness, an emptiness. The picture yeah. Yeah. complete. So we never have a photograph digitally or you know in a frame it already conceptualizes itself to a category of experience and it's influencing all these other categories and you know so and so wasn't there at the party you're not in the photo well you're not in the scene you're not in the reality and all of the categories around that person start to change and you can imagine if that if the family dynamics were were twisted enough that that could be enormously hard to process for uh, you know a fragile minded individual and they would start having to retreat and formulate alternative realities and I think this is the the basis of a lot of the mental health problems that we see today right because people are doing this not just in the in the case of a family photo per se but with the selfie. They're building up simulations of themselves with the selfie. Exactly. And it, it spins out through social media. And I think we're, we're, we're saying something, I hope listeners hear that we're saying something much, much deeper and more serious than we all try to project images that we would like to be viewed as. And associate. Mm-hmm. you know, we're all, yeah, sure. We're hustling. We're hopeful. We're, we're trying to put on our bed or, you know, whatever. No, what we're talking about is really simulating a reality, creating false artificial phantom, phantom realities is the better way to put it. Forgetting that we created them, forgetting that they're phantom, that they're fundamentally not uh, structurally and architecturally uh, robust. They're at least second and third hand. And then we get lost. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like that, my band name, Delay Action Hall of Mirrors. It's and it's like when we started early at the very start talking about Winnie the Pooh and Piglet chasing woozles, you know. I think it's 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 interesting too because I know a lot of your thought and thinking is influenced and inspired by you know Papua New Guinea tribal thoughts and tribal people notoriously didn't want to have their photos taken because some kind of soul was being taken away from that and it makes me think about the position the opposition of the soul and the simulation and how resonant that could be for 2023 and anytime that you're creating a sort of simulation of something uh you're necessarily taking a bit of the of the soul out of it i um I want to review the the books, I think by Lily, John Lily, Simulations of God, but I want to steal that wonderful title you just presented, Soul or Simulation. Mm-hmm. I think that is just the most wicked crossroads binary that is genuine that I've I've heard in a while. I think that gets to the heart of a lot of what we've been uh, exploring in the last uh, 10, you know or so episodes we've kind of gotten onto a new group and i think this is another way to bring that into focus i think that's beautiful not just because it's cool alliteration but i think it really says something and it's um it's odd because both of them in say like greek terms would be considered ethereal to some extent 
But notice the difference. I mean, soul just has a whole range of connotations. I mean, I first think of like soul food, soul music. So mm-hmm. there's texture, there's meat, there's heat, there's sensuality. And simulation, I mean, that just seems artificial, false. All I don't see any good connotations associated with that word field, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I love that. I, I think you I think you did something important there. Uh, but just to touch on the the tribal uh, mindset about photography, because we did look at that over a, cu- a couple of of some of our you know really uh, well straightforward anthropological episodes, and I think we said then, and we should, so we should just repeat and refine now that the problem with the Westerners cartooned or caricatured the view of photography that indigenous people had. We said, well, it was a soul capturing thing or it would affect the lives of the dead. And that is exactly the the issue. That's exactly what, no question about it. Unfortunately, because we're not tribal and totemic people openly, we're at war with those, those ideas because uh, we're following the science if, if no one understands and it's not really it's really following the engineering uh that's what we're doing uh we're being led by the engineering uh for us it was metaphorical you know and and there therein lies the problem if if soul for instance as part of that binary is 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 metaphorical for you I think you've you've missed the I, I I don't think you're there. I think you've closed. I think you're there's no way for you to uh, transcend that prepositional distance. You are outside the photograph. You have objectified it. You have agreed to a subject object distance that you cannot negotiate now because you've you're you've conceded your mindset to be within that frame. Mm-hmm. And you have to then give up a hell of a lot to get free of that. And that scares the hell out of people so they don't do it. Uh, but if you if we could, and I think that's a very cool way of helping me to think in a small way what happened to me with, I think, more of the Solomon Islanders than, than in New Guinea, but a sense that I actually crossed over into the mindset, the soul set of a very different perspective and that's a little bit like what your imaginative challenge is streaming along in so what do you think of that 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 i think what you've done is you really expressed my concerns about photography in in terms of framing and defining the future but i think what's even more powerful is what you said about distancing us fundamentally from soul as reality i think that that, simulation right 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 yeah that's a really great way of putting it people sometimes say man what if we're in the matrix well if not literally if we're not a literal computer program we're certainly on our way there because of the amount of algorithm and and uh, simulation that we're currently in and i run out of words at a certain point because when you were saying that if you have too much prepositional distance and you've separated the subjective and the objective, to me, 
it's hard to explain the subjective feeling of having a soul. If somebody were to ask me, are, do you have a soul? Are souls real? I would say, of course, absolutely. How do you know? Well, I feel it. Like I feel like I have hands and I feel like I have feet. I feel like I have a soul. It's right. It's in here. It's around. It's in my stomach, in my heart. It's in me. It's animating me. And I don't know how else to say that. But I think that when you talk about how frightened people get about that, it's beginning to make sense to me. So my contention is that the reason why people want to maintain that distance from the soul is out of complete fear because the ego is trying to protect you at all costs, at all costs from everything. And as life has gotten safer and safer, the ego has had less and less to do. So it has to search for things to protect you from. And I mean, we said it part of having a soul and being organic and existing in a continuum with other life forms and engaging in a little bit of perspectivism at times and meditating and, you know, getting the frequencies tuned around you, all of that subjects you to chance. And you can't simulate that away. You can't warn people or put the 15 Seattle signs everywhere to keep every bad thing out from happening. So in a way, existing with a soul uh, and a physical body in this environment is inherently dangerous. It comes with the package. It's on the tin from the minute that we're born. There is chance, surprise, uh, and there's nothing that you can do about it. But if you want to believe that you can aerospace engineer your way through your life and predict and algorithmize and simulate within an inch of its life, you might be able to stay safe. Then you can't believe that you have a soul. You have to believe that you're a math equation dealing with other math equations. And if you just get it right, maybe you'll never die. <laughs> but I got bad news for you. You are, you are, you're, you're going to die. So. I love that riff and it is such a nice jigsaw fit with uh, the classroom where I was lecturing yesterday is in the science and engineering building, which has a really good vibe or they got really cool posters. The astronomy people have galaxies exploding and there's yeah. all sorts of great, it's, and the mood is good because people are going to make money in those fields. But in my classroom, and I was about to talk about asymic writing, you know, and hieroglyphic mm -hmm. systems and a Rongo Rongo uh, approach, you know, uh, and I had the visual aids right there because there's a series, a whole whiteboard taken on the on the left with eigenvalue equations, you know, and I'm, you know, it's just beautifully abstruse. And then there's the door and on the other whiteboard, so beautifully simulated match is a pretty decent uh, cartoon of a Hello Kitty uh, figure. Mm. One of the characters from Hello Kitty. Mm. And the collision of that. And, and the other thing that was so, I, I really had to point that out to these bright young people. And I'm, you know, they saw it. 
there's no it wasn't a perception problem but there was no processing of the and but once i mentioned it they really even think oh you know because it and i think that's what we get with if, if you're not a soul you're you're oscillating between the eigenvalue equations and the hello kitty cartoon figure that's not that well done i think do you think do you think that writing a novel is a sim is that a simulatory exercise well i i'm glad you mentioned that because i think this is exactly where it's going you're you're so acute uh because it does raise some real questions for for art i think they apply to music painting really anything because you're talking about intentionality mm -hmm. planning uh, you know, working to a program. And the question I wanted to ask, this is how I wanted to phrase it. I really do think any, if we, if we're, if we look, just look laterally, any kind of creative activity falls into this cooking, anything. But my question for you is how many things are built or made, et cetera, in order to see what they become? Mm. So much seems to be about working to a plan, executing a program, predicting the future. Mm. Yeah, so that's yeah. my tie back. I like that a lot, especially in terms of writing. When you, I can never write anymore with an ending in mind. I have to sink into the every scene and make each scene its own little fun house that I have my characters play in. Uh, as, soon, as soon as I have an, an ending in mind, it sucks all the energy out of the project. And I have to forget that potential ending that I came to. Or a new fun practice that I have is to come up with an ending and actually really act in rebellious opposition to my plan. I'm sort of an anti-outliner in that way. I've started writing down what happens in scenes and my natural contrarian aspect is not to uh you know completely pants my novels anymore but to put something that tells me what to do so i can say i'm not doing that i'm doing my own thing um but man we might have hit on something really interesting about if you are a a, a person who does feel that subjective soul feeling uh the kind of art that you dig versus the people who who don't you know because there are people who love marvel movies and love Disney films and oh, yes. that kind of thing. And what I've noticed is that the real Marvel geeks do tend to be in tech, engineering, STEM, right? They're STEM guys who like Marvel. And I wonder that because when a Marvel movie comes on for me, I can feel my brain turning into jelly because I'm like, oh my God, I know exactly where this is going and I can pace it out for you. I can write the movie before I even watch it. How is this fun? But you said it. It's because those things are built for their for where they go, for what they become, for how much, for how many McDonald's toys they sell, how many posters go on people's walls, how many children's shoes they can move at Target. So I think that's huge. I think that's I think that that's huge because when I read a book like Altered Carbon or Zanesville, that quality that I was trying to point out that was really prominent in this kind of late 90s, early 2000s uh, male writer milieu was a real sense, and I get this with your writing, everything I've read from yours, 
that you're having fun with the sentence that you're writing yeah. or the paragraph that, you, that you're constructing. And your books are put together as such so that the Private Midnight's a good example of one that up to a point does follow genre convention, but you're not asleep at the wheel up to that point. You're saying, how can I inhabit and ensoul these paragraphs with fun? And some people, I think, I think, because I'm, you know, reading these bad reviews of Altered Carbon as an example, I think some people, it starts to freak them out because maybe good writing is proof that souls are real. And maybe some people don't like that. Well, I think that's a fascinating, fascinating premise to, to rip into. But if we looked at just the enjoyment of language, almost on that kind of neuro-linguistic programming, we've both had this experience, and you've been really, you've had some good raps about it, uh, when, you know, later in the show with one of our segments, like a tool or a dream, and well, the dream segments are good, because I've gone off to a very strange place a couple of times with your dream uh, accounts and you've you know the same and i think that ability to engage in this very very strange potentially enormously exciting but also really scary uh telepathic interdimensional engagement through and i think the paragraph is a lovely uh unit i was sort of glad you know re- people who actually love language and and words uh people who are real writers in my view they talk about sentences and paragraphs, not number of words and pages or chapters. Mm-hmm. I mean, I hear someone say a chapter, and I think, now, I would have so much preferred if you said episode or scene. I love mm-hmm. it, you know? I think that's the different People who, uh, that I vibrate on the same frequency to are always thinking in terms of, of drama and actual crisis discovery surprise fun something really happening yeah and not just you know narration you know so mm-hmm. yeah not just narration yeah exactly which is so popular right now the biggest genre in sci-fi is called lit rpg so it's based on the idea in almost every book is that a person gets trapped in a video game and has to perform tasks to level their character up so that they can become the most powerful in that world. People love it. Certain kinds of people. Yeah. Certain kinds. <laughs> I've, I've been saying Soul that phrase a lot. Simulation. Soul yeah. or simulation. Soul or yeah. simulation. Yeah. What and what makes you more what makes you more comfortable? I used to say that I thought some people were NPCs, which are non-player characters, meaning they don't have a soul. I am revising that to say, I think that there is a spectrum of how comfortable you are with your soul. And that's reflected in the choices you make and the things that you consume and how you live your, your day-to-day life. It's, you gotta get, you gotta get comfortable with the soul, man, with the, with the Shen is what they would call it in TCM. But, uh, I love this. I love it when you talk like this. (laughs) You know, the idea of a non-player character, I think that alone is just just gorgeous. But what about a non-character player? 
Could you have yeah. that? I think that you could. I think that you absolutely could. I think that. Oh, that's kind of spooky, though. Yeah. So if you're a non-character player, you might be that Sam Raimi camera in the Evil Dead, you know, flying through the woods. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's the other. It's mm -hmm. a real other, I think. Um, God, there's some really crazy stuff going on in that. But so where does that leave the the young novelist who is wanting to work in a genre say mm -hmm. because that's where they learned how to love to read and that's their orientation and yet they're resistant to cookie cutter formula and this is kind of a, a problem that really i think is is pretty old in literature um it may be really, you know, just got formulated, you know, really just ground in in the 20th century with pulps, the pulps. But what do you think of that? How do you, what's your uh, tip for, for not falling prey to the formula and mixing up some of that Hello Kitty cartoon, you know, getting some of that energy going back and forth? I'm glad you asked because I've been thinking about this a lot in terms of a course that I'm developing. So the idea is how to write a novel pretty basic i split it into drafting so first draft second draft i call it writing and editing and my contention is that writing is a sacred act but editing is also a sacred act because it's an act of translation so what i would say is that the way that the writer gets around this is by reframing genre conventions and formula into a kind of translation experience. The first time you go through your draft, it's completely you. You're pouring your soul, you're doing the sentences and the paragraphs. In the second sense, you are not changing anything to fit genre conventions. That's not what I'm saying at all. What you are doing is attempting, and this is hard, this is not easy, this is hard. You're trying as hard as you can to make that beautiful ensouled writing as clear as possible not simple but clear you want the words to really to to sing so that if you have a reader of moderate intelligence they're following along with you right i'm not against difficulty but i do think there's something really interesting about sort of a, a crypto transgressive ability to meet the monoculture on its terms and subvert it like a sleeper agent, just slipping in there and introducing people to a love of language. So I think that if you don't want to fit into, well, because it's a, it's a very clear problem, which is that monoculture is monoculture for a reason. Most people like it. It's what mostly sells. At least that's what we're led to believe. I'm suspicious about that. Um, so if you don't want to fit into that, but you still want to want to sell i would recommend a kind of a kind of tiger trap maybe that might be too violent maybe uh maybe just one of those boxes with the stick on it where you can say hey free cookies inside and then when they get in there you yank the stick out and it falls back down but some sort of olive branch trap to lure people in and i'm thinking 
over the not over the course of even one book, but maybe over the course of your entire literary career. I love this idea of sort of the Philip K. Dick model where he started out. You'll have to admit his earlier books are not his best because they're very formulaic science fiction that got him in the door, that got him working, that got him this readership. And then towards the end of his career, you have Vallis and Ubik and his ex, ex, exegesis, right? His big exegesis on the, you know, the pink laser beam in 1947 that transported him back to Rome in the Black Iron Prison. And so when you look at his oeuvre over the course of his life, that is an act of crypto. He moves from very kind of cookie cutter sci-fi into progressively weirder stuff. So long-winded, but a few points. First one, Crypto transgression, olive branch, trap, right? And also thinking about the novel as a as a unit within a larger body of work. Like what what are you doing not just with this book, but over the 36 summers that you have left? Because that's what I look at. And of course, that's always changing and you know, there's no ending in sight, but I I just I wanna hook people and then get weirder and weirder and weirder and weirder as we go along until that's what they come to expect and maybe even like. I love the crypto transgression, olive branch and trap. And for listeners, uh, David did some hand gestures to ex, you know, to dramatize and visualize the trap. And that was, that was really a treat. Have I shared my, like there, Philip K. Dick lived on Francisco street in Berkeley and uh, somewhere just uh, where I lived at one point. And uh, there was a day that he talks sort of a really funky old broken down, what would have been a farmhouse a long time ago, down on the flatlands of Berkeley, just off San Pablo Avenue. So not a great place to live. In his impoverished getting started days, one day he got enough manuscripts, rejected manuscripts returned to actually collapse through the rotting front porch (laughs) of his house. I love that story. I love that story. I think that is, uh, well, you know, it. you can see it. You can see yeah. it. It reminds me of the phrase, breakdowns lead to breakthroughs. Maybe breakthroughs can lead to breakdowns. I don't know. Yeah. But that that seems to be a real uh, pivotal moment. I'm going to go check on the kiddo really quickly. Yeah. I'm sorry I keep doing this. I just want to make sure that he's. Oh, no worries. He some sometimes he rolls around violently in his sleep. So I have to just make sure that, you know, his head's not hanging over the edge of the bed or anything well, like that. I, that's why I thought it might be best not to sort of continue just monologuing, just to let you hear and see what's going on. Everything okay? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's good. He's good. He's just okay. napping away. Uh, on that note, you interested in... This, uh, this, these animal, this Dr. Doolittle too. Yeah. Yeah. And I, uh, do we have a real title or do you so, want to do a little too? If I had to go with a title. Hmm. 
No. But there's some uh, duh, 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 duh. removing the brick might be a good one. Okay. Like the way that that sounds. So okay. this begins um, with the child having a strange pain in his hips that forces us to go to the family doctor that we see. And upon analysis, there's nothing wrong. They're thinking maybe some kind of baby fibromyalgia or something. He has a pain in his hip and he doesn't know why. Then he, we are out in the backyard, me and this boy, who knows who this boy is. We're out in the backyard and I remove a brick from the lawn to reveal a garden snake. And he exclaims, the ceiling, the ceiling, the ceiling, which is something my son did in the post office the other day. He, oh, uh, he was wow. looking up at the ceiling and just saying ceiling, looking down at the floor and saying floor. But in this case, he's exclaiming it when I've removed a brick from on top of a garden snake. Beautiful. We're out watching the bluebirds and the cardinals. I've actually seen a few blue jays recently. And he begins to just say the word hi, 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 hi. Because he likes to say that as well. And I think, and then I start to put things together. These are very extreme very deeply felt emotions that are coming from him, especially the one with the ceiling. You'd almost think about what it might be like to experience having your roof ripped off in a tornado, something that dramatic. That's the kind of reaction that he's having, especially to this brick that's been removed from on top of the snake. And so I begin to put together what we mentioned earlier, what the prompt is that he's able to understand the emotions of these animals. So as we do this, we go to the zoo and we observe tortoises eating leaves, and he says words like slow, really felt though. Uh, whenever dogs are around him, he actually gets a little bit anxious and antsy and begins looking up at me for some kind of approval because he's feeling that dog-like feeling, the need for approval. So I wonder to myself, well, this, like you said, in his later life could lead to something along the lines of schizophrenia. So what do you do? And I have a few thoughts, and I'd like to get your thoughts on them as well. But I would, first of all, attempt to give it a kind of language, uh, oh, particularly oh, yeah. a, sh a shared language that he and I understand, because this is just a theory, but one element of schizophrenia that might lead to it really taking off outside of the neurochemical, completely out of your hands type stuff, is the feeling of isolation of the schizophrenic, the inability to really communicate what they're experiencing to other people. So I would want to create a language around this uh, and communicate to him that it, on some level, if not subjectively, but you know, through the words, I understand what he's saying. And then, you know, mindfulness gets a bad rap, especially with its relationship to things like productivity. But one thing that I do think meditation is good at is the ability to look at thoughts and then let them go and not become too consumed with them. It's really good if you have things like anxiety or OCD. So from a very young age, and this is something I might do with my own son, uh, I would like for him to sit with his thoughts and understand what thoughts are and have a real mythology about the idea of thoughts. I don't want him thinking that, you know, God's in his head and God's judging him and this, that, and the other, but the kind of stuff that you and I talk about how Thoughts are kind of spirits and our, our heads are places where they meet 
and we can let them go, we can hold on to them, we can study them, uh, but that they're not, they don't represent reality unless you want them to. Um, so that's what I would do. Yeah, I would I'd try to give it a language. I would try to teach him what to pay attention to and what to let go. And I mean, what I wouldn't do is try to isolate him from nature and animals, which is what I think a lot of parents might do. They might say, you can't go outside anymore because yeah. you, you feel too much. I would go with him and do my best to tell him, buddy, I got your back, right? That was really good. Cool. I'm, I'm glad. <laughs> I, I look, the whole thing was true, but I, I have to say, just break down some of the components here. That last bit, I think, and I loved your absolute assurance that this would be a very common reaction to quarantine this child yeah. from the natural world. And you, you didn't see any novelty in that idea or any surprise and that was great to hear because i think the tonality of that is so important you're right that's exactly it's not only exactly what would happen it would be the standard mm -hmm. it would mm -hmm. be more common than not and and it's such a strange idea and i think metaphorically it can be used to look at a whole bunch of problems that are going on right now. I mean, I wish Greg Bateson were still alive because I think he would really benefit from, you know, just chatting with you. I think that would have maybe sparked a whole other uh, new line of inquiry because you, you jumped really all over what, what it, you know, what he was talking about with the double bind and he's of course not alone, but what, what he was saying is that that there has to be an approach that does not just say all forms of mental illness, let's say schizophrenia, are entirely based on neuroelectric, neurochemical, genetic, in-body, on-board mind, brain malfunctions. Mm -hmm. Nor can it be simply imaginary and existing only by social convention and and therefore definitions of it change geographically that's not satisfactory either and i think you you're you're snaking your interesting curious lost explorer mindset through a a really interesting valley between those and that mm -hmm. is where if there is any future for either psychology in just a general curious sense or counseling and some form of, of mental health services. It's got to be in that direction. If it's going to have any, because the other two just are not working and they're not meeting, they're not oscillating. I think that's really, really good. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think that in terms of schizophrenia, depression, anxiety, we have a real kind of, you know, stop whining, take the drugs, and just get on with it instead of wondering is there something wrong with our environment that we're in right now is there perhaps something that could be causing this <laughs> the, the way that we live our lives are we maybe you know over the course of human existence this is a tiny little fingernail on the body of human existence and we think that people should just change their internal chemistry and this is something, by the way, that 
you have to be really sensitive about when you talk about it because everybody knows somebody or is that person themselves who's on one of these drugs to straighten them out, so to speak. And I think that what they hear is that, you know, that they're stupid or bad or that, you know, I want them to just go off their meds and flip out or whatever and just be crazy all the time. I'm not suggesting that at all. I'm, this is a nuanced thing that people would have to approach in a, you know, in a, in a very deliberate manner for it to, for it to work. What I am suggesting though, and this is kind of hard is that I don't think those things really work. Right. I don't think they work in the sense of fixing something. I think they tamp it down. Right. Anything that you have to do all the time to, to, to keep the effect. I don't really think that that's, uh, you know, think that really works it's except eating maybe <laughs> i guess you have to keep eating but oh yeah look i i think that i mean that's a whole interesting sort of uh it's not an alcove it, it's a full wing of my memory and alertness book at least my thinking so far about the very nature of repetition and what that right. what the action i mean that if you really start to think about that, that is a very, very peculiar idea because mm -hmm. it, it really does repeat across categories in a way that's inexplicable. And yet, if it's not obvious to you or, you know, if there's any question about it, then that seems mysterious. And then you start thinking, okay, well, how many layers and layers of repetition are what we call reality mm -hmm. and therefore well what do we mean what's not repetition then or what are we, how are we visualizing that are there endless repeating patterns and what what we mean by a break in that is kind of a hole we see through that gives it you know dimensional mm -hmm. uh, vision it's a very very weird idea mm -hmm. and it starts and i think that one of the uh the things that that we lost when we were studying schizophrenics more personally and not just giving them the meds, as you said, just take the drugs. I think that stop wanting and take the drugs is a great bumper sticker. It's great. <laughs> uh, there was some real uh, sharing of ritualistic behaviors, uh, structural attempts to deal with a problem which involved, first of all, being able to articulate the problem. Oftentimes, that's where Bateson said the double bind really starts, is that well, you can't, if you can't articulate the problem, then you're really, uh, in any way, I mean, not just, not just you know, literally, linguistically, uh, you're kind of, how do you know you're not contributing to the problem? And that's what some of the more lucid schizophrenics have said, is that, what you have seen in my behavior that is so weird really it makes a sense inside you just can't see the full dream here the full interior monologue and when the problem gets to the point where there isn't that kind of solution however weird socially it appears mm -hmm. i mean that's a big difference right i mean we may see someone really raving in the street happy or dangerous well, that could be working for them in the moment, in their internal situation, but it could also not be working, mm -hmm. you know, and they could be, they could be building up to a great 
breakthrough or another level of breakdown. You know, just because they're crazy doesn't mean they can't break down. That's what I'm, that's exactly what I'm saying. I'm saying maybe a part, a start to the solution, um, a first step in this is maybe, maybe considering that they might be onto something and hearing them out and maybe perhaps doing a little bit of that translation work to really try to understand, not in terms of right or wrong in so far as it fits the dominant paradigm that we're in, but really trying to, to feel what they're, what they're feeling, you know, and maybe that might be a way to diagnose, you know, I brought up your prison solution to Rios the other day. Huh? And we were talking about kind of what a good idea that actually was because it took the inhumanity out of punishment, out of carceral punishment. Uh, by putting a chip or a collar or something on people that activates when they harm others to harm themselves. And very specifically, by the way, putting them in nature and getting them to work with their hands. I think that that would also be the beginning of a, of a kind of treatment for schizophrenia, perhaps, you know, uh, allocating some land and getting them working, getting, you know, maybe this language that is inside of them, that's coming out all messed up. Maybe the reason why is because like a kid who hasn't learned to speak yet, maybe their parents and their teachers is nature and they, they need to find that language through that. I think that's absolutely right. And I think that the, uh, the approach, the philosophy and some of the specifics uh, that we talked about in terms of a revised prison system structurally and how that might look, I think much of that can be applied to today's mentally ill, the homeless mentally ill in particular. I think, and I think it could be done with tremendous humanity and uh, possibly wonderfully unpredictable results. You know, and this ties back to our engineering thing of predicting the future of everything. You want everything to meet your predictions. And yeah, there is chance, fate, just all sorts of things you can't control. But instead of being excited about that, you're kind of like pissed off. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why some of those people have never really been one to, you know, I don't know, pick up anyone at a bar on a Friday night. Because I don't think they're open to enough possible surprise malfunction, you know, malfunction, mm -hmm. uh, a life malfunction. But um, there was something else that you said that really... Um, Talking about the prison, uh, that that episode was really good. I'm glad you liked that idea. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we should, yeah, try to, uh, I don't know, pitch that to uh, some yeah. level of power. Right. And it would be only mildly authoritarian because you couldn't leave, right? And you there had to be no more drugs. Drugs are cut off, no drugs, no alcohol. If you want to smoke cigarettes, sure, why not? But you would only have to be authoritarian for a little bit because the contention would be that we're keeping you off of drugs and keeping you in the woods until you don't want drugs and you don't want to leave the woods, right? And then after that, you you sort of have to be pushed into the deep end of the pool, so to speak, 
and learn how to swim. But after a while, you'll enjoy it. You'll you will you wouldn't want to go back to a city and 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 doing a lot of people who I know, by the way, who've had really serious drug addictions in the in the past. Most of them don't. Well, some of them unfortunately end up dead or in prison. The ones that don't, very few of them, in my life experience, end up at a sort of cubicle corporate job. A lot of them work on co-ops. Uh, a lot of them, a, a lot of farming, a lot of outside farming oh. type stuff. So that's anecdotally, uh, which I'm beginning to think that anecdotal evidence is the only real evidence that has any value. Um, nice. Seems, seems <laughs> to <luck>. work. <laughs> well, that is a very powerful idea. I think that's, I think, well, here's the thing. Uh, I think that's a fascinating assertion just on its own. But for next episode, one way to sort of move forward on this idea of simulation or soul, photography is engineering. Engineering is trying to imaginatively photograph the future and then work to that, such that the phrase reverse engineering might be tautological or redundant. It's just not... Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's a weird, that was part, that's kind of a way to put my, my connection with this engineering mindset. And I, I know that's not the whole story, but I think it was really, uh, really wild to think of it that way. But I'm writing, uh, that, I'm writing that down is reverse engineering logical. That's, that's a cool title title for next time. But the, the, the key word that you used that kind of exploded that idea beyond anecdotal versus, I don't know, statistical or mathematical. I don't know. There, there are a whole strange bunch of models of what might be, you know, more uh, believable, you know, mm -hmm. more substantial. Uh, but I think you raised a really good question about that just intuitively, but the key word is evidence. You know, I mean, that has so much strange power in it when you think about it, because, I mean, if something is just think about it from just a little bit of a tweak, something being evident. Well, that's almost synonymous with connotatively with obvious, you know, mm -hmm. it's in plain sight. And well, what's not but, in plain sight, you know, but yeah, evidence isn't always evident. Yeah, yeah. There's some. This is where I think you know it's people who aren't interested in words freak me out because on little tiny hinges turn very big doors. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's super cool. I like that a lot. I think about words now because of the show. Actually, I think about words all the time, and I'm not going to go back down the the rabbit hole of thinking about my thinking and speech. Uh, no acid, no acid trips while my son is napping today. But do you have a tool and a tip? I do, I do. And uh, the tool is uh, it's it, but it has a, a very definite sort of language edge to it. But I think it's um, it's it's more applicable. Uh, conceptually than than just a language or or writerly sort of uh idea it whenever i appear uh 
in lectures, classes, you know, groups, audiences that are, uh, well, say in the university context, uh, it's very, very, well, it's almost impossible to avoid that I will run into some faculty present, some sort of uh, official view that I think makes me look hipper than I am because they are so straight and literal. I mean, to me, I'm I'm doing what I do. And you would go, yeah, well, that's, you know, I, <laughs> that's him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, I, I could be not seen as schizophrenic, but far more uh, spiral than I, in fact, may be, or it's certainly what I aspire to be, but I don't know if I really am achieving that. I just think they often, you know, it's it's easy to seem weird to people, crudely weird to people who are genuinely weird in their uh, pedestrian-ness. Uh, but I noticed, though, that, that with that kind of uh, opposition, that as I've gotten more and more alert to audiences, to eye contact, to posture, to engagement and response, I've gotten more and more confident with what works. And the podcast has helped me a great deal with this too. And your response to the imaginative challenges. So the my theme of the last week has been a return to absolute unconditional loyalty to the oblique angle, particularly when it comes to all matters of learning and teaching. And I think to creating too. I think that that is how you break the engineering, uh, the bridge that is too rigid of engineering and to make it more flexible. And I think you return to the best values of engineers all the way back to Archimedes, you know, you Mm got to get flexible rope bridge, you know, that's such a beautiful idea rather than this, all the metal I've been seeing. But in, in terms of, of what this means, uh, I think that you, you can't, the Lewis Thomas quote language allows us to not come to the point. Actually, if we do come to the point, we could really kill it off instantly and not explain anything. I mean, here's an example. Uh, I was listening on the radio and and Seattle has the highest car insurance because of most car accidents, rude drivers problems. But then the subject came up of driving in the snow. No one knows how to drive in the snow. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, you know, you could hire someone to write 500 words, 5,000 words, really good words, and maybe even diagrams about driving in the snow. And it wouldn't mean anything. Right, <laughs> you know? right. Mm-hmm. It's, and so much of language is like that. And I think so much of subjects are like that. And when I was reflecting on this uh, sort of pressure I get from official source of, of being a little bit too spiral, a little bit too oblique, it occurs to me, well, the simple thing is there, we have a fundamental disagreement about the nature of the subject. Yep. You know, you think I am not sticking to the point. Well, you have therefore rhetorically engaged with owning that point. And I'm I'm not maybe not going along with that at all. And I mm-hmm. think, you know, 
oftentimes that happens. So always look in terms of oblique ways of particularly teaching, I think, wherever we're instructing other people or trying to explain. On a more practical level, I see this tool being applied to writing in a very explicit sense of, and this is uh, proven to be very helpful, of getting students and yet emerging writers to take known phrases or things that sound very familiar, musically almost, more than semantically, and just rejig them, but constantly do that and have a kind of a weird little methodology, have a little bit of a formalist phrase you know, phase in your writing career where you're using uh, a technique, you know, or kind of a, a, like having a, a, your own writing machine. But people who know Raymond Roussel's work, Impressions of Africa and um, Locus Solus, the French crazy, I love him. Mm -hmm. I think he's amazing. And he wrote a book explaining his method uh, Poor guy, he just never got any attention in life, although he was immensely rich. His mother had a series of bathtubs specially made for her collection of chihuahuas. I mean, he was one weird dude. But if you come in from strange angles, here is a title that one of my students came up that I think is it will sound very familiar, but I, it has another sort of level. In the hands of many strange angels. I like that. Do you? I do. Too. I do too. Yeah. Yeah. I do this that. is a this is a very young uh feeling her way author, you know. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a, a a nice sort of retooling of something, you know, in the arms of the angels. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of we it's a beautiful balance of familiarity and surprise. And that's another thing I'd like to uh put a pin in for the a discussion about evidence and for next time and photography's relationship to evidence and simulations i think that's a really cool I do way too. yeah it. yeah yeah i see where you're going with that that's going to be really cool i'm beginning to make some oblique connections as well thinking about what you said too about dealing with the the normies and their relationship to getting to the point it's almost like the oblique strategy is to engage in a in a resonance with thought forms and speech and people and they're on a kind of hunter killer mission to find something and almost you know the 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 search for definitive knowledge feels like it has a kind of violence behind it you know to, to yes, search, and, search and destroy, you know, yeah. like once yeah. we can, once we can name it, we can kill it. You hear people say that all the time, you know, when yeah. cool art movements pop up, as soon as you give them a name, that's it. Well, that's true. That is true. Uh, or something really, I mean, the, that's exactly what happened. Philip K. Dick wrote about in, in a very funny sort of way to the newspapers when the Beats, the San Francisco Beats, became the Beat Nicks. He was right on to that kind of thing of what happens and that strange process of, of being uh, sort of slowly digested 
peristaltically consumed by mm-hmm. popular culture, you know. And, uh, oh, and that that's a very uh I took my mom down to the pier, 95-year-old Ellen, and we watched this seagull with a fairly good-sized fish. I'd say the fish was is, you know, about the length of the butt plug of the guy on Capitol Hill. <laughs> so the seagull eats the fish and mom goes wow that whole fish is now inside him (laughs) you know it was it had that that complete joyful surprise of being absolutely amazing and right and yet Mm -hmm. completely ridiculous and just all (laughs) everything all at once and i thought yes you know yes 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 it is (laughs) that's great that's great and here's my tip i'm going to keep going with my uh simple phrase but big idea everything wants to be found Mm -hmm. because this is the big note i'm currently sort of traveling with and i took it out the other day and I was driving into town. I knew exactly where I was going to go and sit and ride in it. And I look over in the seat when I get there, only a few minutes away, and it's not there. And I thought, oh, no, 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 I'm sure. And then I thought, I heard a sound as I was pulling out of the parking lot. And I thought, I think I put that notebook on the roof of the car. And that was the sound I heard was it falling out. So I trusted that sort of, you know, back-ended perception. And I went back and fortunately I'd gone, I'd got, I went back pretty quickly and there it was, there mm. it was. Mm-hmm. Um, but so trust your, um, I think this is the, yeah. So I've got, the tip is two part. Don't be afraid to clean house, which I mentioned earlier. And I mean that on every level. I really mean that on every possible level. I think metaphor just blurs into concrete reality very quick. I'm talking your objects, friends, notebook, everything. But at the same time, balance that with more trust in some aspect of yourself. Discard, Mm -hmm. then further engage with trust of something. I think that's an interesting, you know... Uh, if you really enforce that balance, I, I'm I'm trying that. I think that's an interesting uh, angle. I'm into it. Yeah, anything that has to do with balance, you begin to come up on something that feels has a feeling of truth to it, because we speak in 2023. We speak in absolutes that really miss the subtleties of things. So you can't you can't get rid of everything and then close yourself off. It's your, your contention is that you, you go deeper, like getting rid of stuff is an opportunity to go deeper into the objects or relationships with people that you already have. Uh, Yep. I'm, I'm there. I'm there. Mm -hmm. Uh, what has the dream world been like this week? Well, I know, I know you've been having trouble because you're not in your normal digs. 
Yeah, and it really has affected the whole thing. And I I feel that a little bit of psychic distress. I don't want to sort of overstate it, but for people who are engaged with your dream loss as I am, and I think you are, I mean, it's you really have to protect that somehow. Mm-hmm. And it's difficult to do work, children, traveling. There are a lot of things that can really disrupt it. But one of the, you know, the underlying number one problem in America before obesity, all these other possible health issues is sleep, sleep mm-hmm. problems. And they can take so many different forms. So protect sleep and the dream life. I have had, the, if there's a motif, it's probably symbolically very straightforward, but the actual experience has been highly unnerving. Mm-hmm. Uh, in one driving a car up a hill, a steep hill, and under some urgent conditions with an uncertain group of people in the car and not being able to, just simply not having the horsepower to deal with the steepening of the road that begins to sort of form like a wave and crest over. And that sudden moment where the car is losing physical connection with the road and that form of matter is making a decision of how it's going to fall. Is it going to tip over? Is it going to free fall away? And that absolutely disturbing sense, which I think goes back to, uh, well, for a lot of us to childhood, you know, that that mm-hmm. it's, it's more than just uh, falling. Uh, and this happened three times in different dreams over the over the last few nights of um, a car, a motorcycle and some kind of roller coaster. Mm. I don't know what those I mean, I think the symbolism is very clear. Uh did they wake you up like when you fall in a dream or something like that? At that moment you're talking about when there's that disconnect and the drift. Yeah, certainly that... two of them did dramatically. Absolutely. I'm not so clear on the third, mm-hmm. uh, but I didn't get, you know, and this is an interesting question about the nature of symbolism. I did not. I mean, you could interpret those pretty clearly as, you know, a big statement about how I feel in my life or I didn't have any sense of of what they related to at all. No sense of context in a way or in another way. And I think this is a part of the larger problem of symbolism. That they destroy all context mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. a sense, don't need it. You know, um, they get to a point where nothing can contextualize them. I mean, think about it. there's nothing that. If you present a swastika, which has meant so many different things over the years, all you there's nothing you can say or deal with it today. It's just there. It's moved beyond symbol in a way. Um, but I didn't have any notion in these dreams of of what uh, you know, no other aspect of my life that they connected with that it might be about health or you know love or you know money or whatever. I did nothing. They were just bigger than that or just blanker than that well maybe it's also an area of your map that has been blacked out maybe that newness is a good thing because you're exploring the area that hasn't been explored because of ants maybe maybe that's your your that command and conquer map with all the you know blacked out space maybe you're starting to you know 
you were on a path and then your brain said, okay, we're going to drop you in the middle of the jungle. <laughs> I really love that. And I, that makes me, uh, that makes me happy hearing it. I see all sorts of possibilities. And it also gave me an idea that while you, we've got these persona of you of cargo prophet, skateboard, God, you know, suburban dad, super dad, all these things form it. I think there's another interesting possibility. And I really, I kind of Terrence McKenna, psychologist counselor. I, I think like he's fantastic at that. Yeah, That's a yeah. great literary character, a great persona for you. I really believe that. That my ultimate goal with the course is uh, inspired by the way that you teach obliquely uh, is ultimately to sort of be that figure, um, to be creating art of my own, but in a sort of Chris Sacknessum, Rick Rubin way, help artists break through their blocks uh, in terms of dreams and symbols and things like that, because there's so much bullshit just all this retarded stuff about like just sit down and write two thousand words a day and you'll you'll break through and it, no if you're if you're shoveling shit <laughs> for two hours a day eventually you're gonna say I'm really tired of this this isn't fun I'm I'm not getting where I want to go with this kind of stuff and you sort it you need the woo man you need the you need the guy who's gonna be like well tell me about you know tell me about what kind of dreams you've been having and then if your client says well I haven't been having them and I say that's an issue. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, and, and there is really po the possibility of tremendous precision in that, that methodology. There really mm -hmm. is. It's, it's cold reading. It's a lot of old, wonderful carnival occult skills that all are quite natural and can come together and can be honed to the point where I think, you know, it would be not just psychological, but alchemical and benefit, you know? Mm -hmm. I think, I agree. yeah, well, we'll, we, we're kind of aspiring to do that already. So uh, maybe uh, we should just focus a little bit more intensely as. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I'm down for that. Well, I'm really looking forward to next time. This has been a lot of fun, uh, but now I think we're going to sign off. I think we are. Thanks everyone for listening. Be well. We will be back with oh, some cool stuff. A fantastic imaginative challenge for David for next time occurred to me because I'm trying to do that too. Because while he's double streaming, I figure I should be double streaming too. So this one is going to really freak him out. And I think it's going to be, well, it's got to be, it's guaranteed to be a surprise. That's the beauty of it. You'll see. So join us next time. Bye.